Monday night was privileged to go and hear uh, Brother Bill Ward preach at Mount Pleasant for their gospel meeting. Had a good number from Quitman to go, and, and that was exciting to be with everybody. And if you know Brother Bill, you know that he has a heart of gold. Uh, Brother Bill is, is a great servant of the Lord. I remember when I first got down here that, that somebody said there's not a door in South Georgia that Bill Ward hadn't knocked on. Uh, and that's a great compliment uh, to him, and it goes to show his mindset as an evangelist. But he preached a sermon from Matthew chapter 18, and he just preached the whole chapter. Talked about how we need to be humble like little children, how to, we need to be humble enough to forgive others uh, when they make mistakes. And so it was a, a much needed lesson, and, and I really enjoyed being there. And then, of course, after service, Jackson and Henley do what they do, and they investigate. They go to a new building, they got to run up on the stage and see everything. And so Jackson brought to my attention that on the pulpit there were some words ingrained there. And he, he wanted me to come see it and say, why is this here? What does it mean? And what you see on the screen is what was on the pulpit. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And to me, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks that what the bill just did. was He preached in such a way where we weren't there to see him. We were there to see Jesus. And it's a great reminder for me and, and Brother Gene and whoever fills the pulpit. You're not here to see me, and aren't we all thankful? Uh, but you're not here to see me. We're here to see Jesus. I told Brother Reg, who was leading singing that night, I said, well, I've got my sermon for Sunday. Because as soon as I saw that, I couldn't help but think about the magnitude of that statement. And of course, from, from my uh, point of view, this is, this is what it's all about. I'm doing this to, to honor God and, and exalt Jesus. And if I'm not doing that, I need to get down. And so thinking about this title of wishing to see Jesus, this is a biblical statement that's found in John chapter 12. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you there. And after a few introductory comments, we're going to examine that text together. And I'm looking forward to studying this with you. We want to begin here because I believe this is extremely important for us to discuss at the onset of this study. is the importance of exalting Jesus as a Son of God. We can never say this enough. We can never do this enough. And this is something that we need to think about. If you're following on the bulletin, if you have your notes, appreciate Brother Joe putting that in week after week, you'll notice that I have the prologue of the book of John listed. It's not going to be up here on the slide here uh, because I knew if I did that, I would get into it and I wouldn't be able to cover anything else. I'd be up here way too long. I don't have the time to do it. But the prologue of John is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And in that text, it's the foyer to the rest of the book of John. And John is talking about the Word who took on flesh. In Him was life. He was the light of men. And all of those things are establishing what John is going to talk about the rest of the book. So I want to challenge you and encourage you. You'll notice on the notes to go through the prologue at some point today as you begin your week and look at some words that jump out to you. What are some of the key words in the prologue that jump out to you that scream, we are to exalt Jesus? Because that's what the prologue is all about, exalting Him. But when we think about Jesus being worthy of all exaltation, there are so many passages to consider, but I just want us to look at these as we begin. In Philippians chapter 2, notice how important it is that before Jesus was exalted, He humbled Himself. He left the heavenly realm, He left the divine realm, He came to this earth, He took on the form of a man, He took on the form of a servant, and He was obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. But because of that, notice the Bible says, Therefore God has highly exalted him. He's given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, 
Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So is it important that we exalt Jesus? When Jesus comes back, everybody will be exalting him. Every atheist will exalt Jesus as the Son of God. But let's not wait till then to exalt Jesus in our lives. We need to be exalting Jesus every single day as Christians. And certainly on the Lord's day today, uh, as we worship the God of heaven, we're mindful of what Jesus did for us on the cross. In Revelation chapter 5, and if you keep this thought in mind as you study the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 4 is God the Father on the throne. Revelation chapter 5 is the Lamb who was slain, who is worthy. Both the Father and the Son are worthy of praise. There is a distinction, there is a difference between God the Father and God the Son. We understand that. And God the Spirit. We sang the song, Holy, 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 this morning. All three are, are, are holy and worthy of that. But there is a distinction between the Godhead. There are three distinct persons, but they make up one divine essence. And as we think about God the Son, as we think about the Lamb, look at the language. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals. For you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood. Now notice the, the language. You did this, redeemed us to God. Now, that's not the same person, right? It's the Son who did that. But aren't we thankful? We read it from Hebrews 2 this morning. Aren't we thankful that he was willing to be likened to his brethren and take on flesh and blood? That's why he's able to aid us, because he knows what it's like to walk in our shoes. He knows what it's like to live in this earth. So there's that distinction. But notice that Jesus is worthy to be exalted. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. And look at all the language. What is he to receive? Power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, blessing. Going down to verse 13. Blessing, honor, glory, and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Here's the point. When we exalt Jesus, we are glorifying God. We glorify God the Father when we exalt Jesus in our lives. That's the way that God designed it. And really, when you think about Jesus emptying himself and stepping out and coming to this earth, he did that to glorify his Father in heaven. He didn't do it to bring attention to himself. He just didn't. He said, I'm here to do the will of him who sent me. This is, this is my meat. My meat is to do the will of the Father. Not my will, but your will be done. Echoes from the garden. So as we think about seeing Jesus, we need to understand that we are to exalt him. And this is to be done, again, in every aspect of our lives. But certainly when we preach and when we teach the gospel to others, we need to make sure that they're not there to see us. We need to get out of our own way so they can see Jesus. That's what we find in the New Testament. When you think about some of these passages that emphasize preaching and teaching, what did John the Immerser do? And you think about who John was. If John wasn't careful, he could have been filled with pride. He could have said, I'm the cousin of the Lord. You know, I was six months, I'm born first. I'm the one that you read about in the Old Testament. I'm the one, the spirit of Elijah who's coming. But John didn't have that mentality, did he? Remember, they came to John. They said, you must be the Christ. You must be the Messiah. All these people are coming to you to be baptized. You're the one who's crying in the wilderness. But look at John's humble response. This is in John chapter 3. He says, you yourselves bear me witness. I said, I'm not the Christ. But I've been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. 
What was it that fulfilled the joy and purpose of John? For Jesus to be exalted. And look at that final statement. He must increase, but I must decrease. That needs to be the cry of every gospel preacher. And that needs to be the mentality of every Christian. Get out of my own way and direct the attention to Jesus. That's what John did. And perhaps that's why Jesus said, those born of women, there's none greater than John the Baptist. Why? Because he knew his ministry, he knew his purpose, and he fulfilled it perfectly. Prepare the way of the Lord. Did John do that? Absolutely. And did it in such a humble way. When he went out of the scene, here's Jesus. And what a great example that is for us. Again, in preaching and teaching and living. Look at what Paul said. For to me, to live is Christ. What is Paul saying? Everything I do is to exalt Jesus in my life. And I believe that's something we need to reflect on. Are we, can we honestly say that everything we're doing is exalting Jesus? Are you exalting Jesus day to day at your job? Are you exalting Jesus day to day in the home? Do we exalt Jesus in how we think and how we speak and how we dress? See, all these things are so important for us as we think about seeing Jesus and exalting Him in our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, Paul makes this point about the preaching of the gospel and how important it is to go and preach. Because here's the wisdom of the world. They didn't know God. So what did God say? Through the foolishness of preaching, I'm going to save them who believe. The Jews, it's a stumbling block. How could this be the Messiah? This is the carpenter's son. To the Greeks, it's foolishness because their love of wisdom. But God said Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. We preach Christ crucified. That's the whole point. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2, what did Paul say? I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It wasn't that Paul wasn't educated. It wasn't that Paul wasn't a great orator. He said, there's my whole purpose. Whole purpose in preaching. Preach Christ and Him crucified. That's what honors God. And very quickly, when you consider the focal point of the sermons in the book of Acts, what is the main source what is the pulse of the sermons in the book of acts is it not jesus acts chapter 2 what did peter preach we could simply say he preached christ and him crucified this jesus whom you've crucified god has made both lord and christ when they heard this they were pricked in the heart men and brethren what shall we do repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of jesus christ for their mission of your sins that's the focal point acts chapter 3 his holy servant jesus the prince of life you took him and you killed him Repent, therefore, and be converted, Acts 3.19. You can go through all of these sermons in the book of Acts, and I encourage you to do it. Look at all the sermons and look at the pulse. What about Stephen? Stephen was willing to die to exalt Jesus, wasn't he? He, preached, he went through the Old Testament, and he brought them to Jesus, and they killed him. And yet, Stephen exalted Jesus. Acts chapter 8, when Philip's in Samaria, what is he doing? He's exalting Jesus. He preached Christ, Acts 8.5. He preached the name of Jesus Christ, the things concerning the kingdom of God, Acts 8, 12. And with the Ethiopian eunuch, what was his sermon? What did he preach? He preached, the Bible says he preached Jesus to him. So when we preach, when we teach, when we evangelize, we are to exalt Jesus Christ as the Son of God. That needs to be our main focus. And with those introductory thoughts in mind, let's go to our text in John chapter 12. This is one of the most monumental moments in the gospel account, especially in the book of John. And we're going to notice that as we read this text together. John chapter 12, we're going to read verses 20 through 27. 
Now, keep in mind the context is Jesus and the triumphal entry. Jesus is making his way to be crucified. And about a week after they say, Hosanna, bless his name of the Lord, they say, crucify him, crucify him. But here is when he enters into Jerusalem, everybody's excited to see him. Verse 20 says, now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. The language here suggests these were non-Jews. These were proselytes. These were individuals who were Gentiles. That's important. They came to Philip, perhaps because Philip had a, a Gentile name, a Greek name, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and they asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Here's another example of, of Andrew bringing someone to Christ. Remember, he's the one that taught Peter, his brother, to come and see Jesus. Now, notice verse 23. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He's talking there about his death. For there to be life, there must first be death. He must die on the cross, die for sin, be buried, and then there will produce life, Romans 1, 4. Verse 25, he who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. And if anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. Notice that. You exalt Jesus, that's how you honor the Father. Jesus is answering the question for the Greeks to say, hey, we want to see Jesus. Jesus, in turn, answers this throughout this context, saying, okay, if you want to see me, you've got to see me through the cross. And I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me, John 12, 32. You've got to hate your own life. You've got to be willing to follow me, whatever it takes. But the most important text here is when he says, The hour has now come that the Son of Man should be glorified. There are so many thoughts here that come out from this text. I want us to take some time to examine them this morning. As you work through the gospel account of John, this was mentioned in Bible class this morning. Brother Gene brought out Galatians 4.4. 4, and I believe this is an important point for us to remember. When Jesus came to this earth, he was not doing his own thing. He had ability, of course. He had power. But he was not doing his own thing on his own schedule. Jesus yielded to and was submissive to his Father's timetable. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son born of a woman, born under the law. That's Galatians 4.4. And so in God's perfect timing, he sent his son. Somebody might say, why didn't he send Jesus in the garden when Adam sinned, and Adam and Eve sinned? Why not send Jesus instead of Moses? Why not send Jesus instead of Joshua? Why not send Jesus instead of Saul and, and David and Solomon? Why not go ahead and send him? Because it wasn't time. God's timing is perfect. It's always perfect. And he knew exactly what he was doing and why to send Jesus at the time that he sent him. Daniel chapter 2 gives us some insight on that with the world powers. With Babylon, with Medo-Persia, with Greece, and with Rome. Those four world empires provided what was needed for the gospel. You had Babylon, had a synagogue, you had worship. You had a place for worship. right? You had the Medo-Persians with an unalterable law. 
people would understand. Here's the law. It's not going to change. You had the Greeks who provided a universal language. And you had the Romans who provided peace and roads to travel on. And when all of those things came to fruition, now it's time. You see, in man's wisdom, we wouldn't have thought that. But God is working all these things throughout all the sands of time to bring about the perfect time to bring Jesus. And so for some who read this text, they might say, okay, what's the big deal? For Jesus to say, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Do you realize that this right here was in the works before time began? Isn't that amazing to think about? Ephesians 3, 9 through 11, the eternal purpose of God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same as in the beginning with God. He was there in eternity. All of this was in the works. And it comes to this point in time for Jesus to say, now is the time. Now the hour has come. The Son of Man should be glorified. When you study the book of John, such a unique book, you'll find this phrase over and over again. My time has not yet come. Remember in John chapter 2, we talked about this in Bible class as well. Uh, Jesus turning the water into, into wine in Cana of Galilee. Remember what happened? His mother said, hey, they're running out of it. And he, she came to Jesus and he said, woman, what are you doing? My time has not yet fully come. That's John chapter 2 and verse 4. What's he referring to? It's not my time yet. In John chapter 7, you read about Jesus' brothers. We know later that would be James and Jude. And at the first time, they didn't believe in him. Can you imagine that? You think about it like, wait a minute, this is our brother. Right? We eat with him, we sleep with him, we play with him throughout the day. That, this is him. This is Jesus. He said, why don't you go up to the feast and show everybody if you're really who you say you are. Why didn't he go? My time has not yet come. John chapter 7 and verse 6. The Bible says he went privately. He didn't go openly. Why did he do that? Verse 8. My time has not yet come. John chapter 7 and verse 30. The same phrase. My time has not yet fully come. John chapter 8 and verse 30. The people are trying to seize him. Why didn't they? My time has not yet come. He was on his father's timetable. This is a part of Jesus submitting to the will of his Father. And it's so important for us to grasp as we study his life. He's doing this to glorify his Father in heaven. John chapter 8 and verse 29. Everything I do is to please the Father. Keep that thought. As we think about seeing Jesus, what were the, the Greeks, what were the Gentiles really asking? Were they just coming and saying, you know, we'd like to see Jesus. We heard about the miracles We've heard about the teaching. We're just kind of curious. I believe it's deeper than that. Because here, the scope of Jesus' ministry and teaching, now it's universal. Think about it. Up until this point, you had the Jews, you had those in this certain area who heard of Jesus and saw it, but now the Greeks have caught word. And maybe it's some of the things that Jesus has been saying about all people coming unto him. And the Gentiles catch wind of this, and they want to see him. What exactly do they want to see? And what do we see when we look at this statement? Number one, we see God's intention. It was always a part of God's plan for the Gentiles to be involved. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, we read about Israel. We read about God's people. He said, I didn't choose you because you were a great number. He chose them for the other side, right? Because they were small. But he had this promise made to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. And was that a promise that was limited to a certain group? When you look at it, he said, In you, in your seed, all families 
of the earth shall be blessed. That's Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. In Psalm 117, this is perhaps the shortest psalm. I believe it is the shortest psalm, only two verses. In Psalm 117, it says, Come and praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Why is that significant? Because the book of Psalms is the praise book for Israel. And yet in Psalm 117, Come and praise Him, all you Gentiles. And so again, this has been a part of God's plan. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. Come, let us go up to the house of the Lord. The, the mountain of the Lord's house will be exalted, and all nations shall flow unto it. What is Isaiah prophesying about? Isaiah 2 is a prophecy of Acts 2. Here's the church. And it was God's plan all along for all people to come and to be united in one body. And in essence, that is the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is all about the church of Christ. And it's all about God's intention that those who would obey His Son's gospel would be added to the body of Christ, added to the family of God. And you can search through these passages. We're not going to take the time to read them this morning. But I hope and pray and I trust that you'll go home and read these and connect these dots together. Ephesians 1, 4, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, and Ephesians 3, 9 through 11. It was not a plan B. It did not catch God off guard. God, in His infinite wisdom, knew exactly what He was doing. And His timing is perfect. And when you see this statement, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Jesus says, My time has now come. This was God's plan all along. God's intention. Number two, we notice God's compassion. God's compassion is seen throughout this statement. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all them that believe, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. That shows the compassion that God has for all people. Didn't we read that this morning? Brother Paul read it, I believe, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. Jesus, by the grace of God, tasted death for who? For all men. He tasted death for all men. That's God's compassion. Remember Acts chapter 10? When Peter took the gospel of the household of Cornelius, what did he say? He said, in every nation, he who fears God and works righteousness is accepted by him. That's the universal scope of the gospel. And that's what the world needs to hear today. And that's exactly what we find when we look at and examine this statement. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Then number three, this reminds us of Jesus' mission. If you'll stay in the text right here, look at verse 27 with me in John 12. Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. And I love verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Something that I came across in, in preparing this is to connect this text with the Garden of Gethsemane. And it lies together perfectly. You think about what Jesus was going through. Verse 27 suggests to us that his soul was troubled. Do we not read that in the garden? When he has Sweat drops of blood coming down from his head. He's in anguish. He throws himself on the ground. And Matthew's account says three times, Father, if there's any other way, let me do that. He says, is that what I need to say? Save me from this hour? 
No. Jesus said, for this purpose, I've come to this very hour. This was in the works. This was God's intention. Jesus knew what he was going to do. Did he have the ability to say, I'm not doing it? He did. He could have called 12 legions of angels. 72,000 angels could have been right there in the garden. John chapter 10, he said, I give my life. I lay down my life. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it again. So Jesus, why did you do it? For love of his Father and because his mission was to come and die for the world. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 8. The seed of woman to deliver the crushing blow to the head of Satan. Genesis 3, 15. The one who'd be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7, 14. The prince of peace. The, the, the wonderful counselor. Isaiah 9, 6. This was prophesied all those years ago. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 38, Jesus says, Let us go and be preaching for this purpose. I have come forth. Jesus said, I came to preach the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. John chapter 10 and verse 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. Jesus lived a life of purpose. And he, had a, he was on a mission. And look at what he did. Nothing was going to derail him or stop him. Not even standing before Pilate. Remember when Pilate talked to him, are, are, you, are you a king? Are you who they say you are? Why are you in front of me right now? He said, listen, my kingdom's not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight for him. My kingdom's not from here. It's not from earthly origin. He said, I have come to bear witness of the truth. And all those who hear my voice hear the truth. And then Pilate's famous question, what is truth? He was staring truth in the eyes. This was all a part of Jesus' mission. And so think about how much is behind that one simple statement. The hour has now come. Why was it? With all these different things that happened. My hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Why now? Because the universal scope of God's intention has come to fruition. The Greeks say, I want to see Jesus. Now it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. As we bring our thoughts to a close this morning, we want to put this in the form of a question. What should we wish to see if we have the same mentality of the Gentiles, sir we wish to see jesus that should be our mentality question is how do we see him today how do we see him first of all you cannot see jesus with a closed bible we see him by looking at his life listening to what he taught seeing the miracles that we are recorded john chapter 20 30 and 31 these things are written that you might believe that's how we have faith, that He is the Son of God. But what exactly do we wish to see? And I want to share five things with you that we need to see. Number one, we need to see the one who left the splendor and glory of heaven. See the one who left the splendor and glory of heaven. In John chapter 17, we have the Lord's Prayer. I understand sometimes we say the Lord's Prayer is Matthew chapter 6. That's not really accurate. Matthew chapter 6 is the model prayer. And the reason we know that is because Jesus said, forgive us of our sins. Jesus wouldn't say that about himself. So he's teaching the disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6. But in John chapter 17, this is his prayer. This is his prayer to his Father. He says, Father, the hour has now come. And in that text, in the first five verses, he says, glorify your name. 
But also he goes back to the glory which he had before the world began. Jesus left where we're trying to go. He left it. I gave my life for you. My glory circled throne. I left it all for you. We sing that song sometimes. And then that haunting question, what have you left for me? We need to be reminded that when we see Jesus, we are seeing the one who left the splendor and glory of heaven. Galatians 4, 4, in the fullness of time, he was sent forth. That means he was already there. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he were rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That's not talking about physical, monetary. It's talking about the spiritual blessings that we would have. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. All spiritual blessings are found in Christ. All because Jesus was willing to empty himself of the splendor and glory so you and I could have a hope of seeing it and being with him forever. See the one who left the splendor and glory of heaven. Number two, see the one who lived a perfect, sinless life. This is one of the most amazing aspects of the life of Jesus. Because you and I well know how easy it is to make a mistake. As human beings, it is so easy. You stub your toe on something, here's a word. You look at something you shouldn't look at, here's a thought. Jesus never sinned. Never. Think about it for a second. Was he tempted? Oh yeah. 100%. He was tempted in all ways like we are tempted. Yet without sin. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. This is one of the most amazing things that when we see Jesus, we have a perfect example to follow. Because he lived this life in this world and yet he never succumbed to temptation. You and I, we can't say that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. But Jesus was sinlessly perfect. We need to see the one who lived a perfect, sinless life. We're going to be reading this in a few weeks, Lord willing, as we work our way through Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7, showing that his priesthood is better. He says, we have a merciful high priest who is sinless, perfect, separate from sinners. We could say Jesus is in a league of his own. Jesus is perfect in every aspect. Peter, of course, picked up on this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. He says, We should follow in Jesus' steps, because in him there was no guile. There was no sin whatsoever. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. He never made a mistake. Think about our mindset. Think about where we need to be looking. See Jesus. Be motivated to be like him. The one who loved us so much that he left the splendor and glory of heaven. The one who lived a perfect and sinless life. And see the one who loosed the physically and the spiritually sick from sin and death. Again, this was a part of Jesus' mission. But what does this world need to hear today? There is a balm in Gilead. There is a cure for all this pain and sickness and problem that's going on in the world. And it's the gospel. We talk about all the things going on in society, and they're, they're awful. Don't get me wrong. They are awful. But God says, I've got a cure right here. Because when somebody has the gospel, that takes care of all the issues that we see going on. Romans chapter 12, for example. You're not going to murder somebody beside you. You're not going to covet something else somebody has. Why? You've been transformed by the gospel of Christ. 
That's the purpose of it. That's what the world needs. All these different solutions that people say from, from the Supreme Court and all these other things. Here's a solution right here. It's the same power. Think about what Jesus offered to the world then, the first century. Those who were physically sick and spiritually sick, Jesus came and he made a difference. Luke chapter 4, 16 through 22, when he reads from the prophet Isaiah. Remember that when he reads it? The Spirit of the Lord has come upon me. I'm come to, to heal the sick, to give sight to the blind. And then he closes the book. He says, today this hearing has been fulfilled in your ears. And you could hear a pin drop that morning. Jesus said, that's why I'm here. This is why he came. Again, Luke 19 and verse 10, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's his purpose. That's why he came. We need to see that. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you will be my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. John 8, 31 and 32. That's what he came to do, to set liberty to the captives and to bring the kind of life that we all need to live, the abundant life in Christ. This is who we need to see. There's so many in the world today who have this picture of Jesus in their own mind. But this is who the Bible says Jesus really is. And this is the one we need to see. He left the splendor and glory of heaven. He lived a perfect and sinless life. He loosed the physically and spiritually sick from pain and death. Number four, he led those in darkness to the light. There are so many in our world today who are just in darkness. Perpetual darkness. In a downward spiral going farther and farther away into darkness. But Jesus can reach. He can reach you. No matter how far spiraled you've gone. Ask the Apostle Paul. Could you be in more darkness than Saul who was murdering Christians? And yet the grace of God reached him. The blood of Jesus reached him. The grace of God and the blood of Jesus can reach anybody today. Doesn't matter how far you've gone down. That's what Jesus is all about, to bring those out of darkness to the light. Look at John chapter 3 with me. Very familiar text. Of course, in verse 16, we'll get to, it'd be hard-pressed for us not to look at that passage. But in John chapter 3, as you go after that famous statement about God so loving the world and what he did, I want you to notice this in verses 18 through 21. This is Jesus speaking. He says, He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. That's what Jesus is about. Jesus is all about getting you out of darkness and putting you into the position of light. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. We've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. When you obey the gospel, you come out of darkness, you're translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, Colossians 1.13. That's who we need to see. When we see Jesus, see the one who doesn't want you to stay in your darkness. He'll come find you in your darkness, but he don't want you to stay there. He's going to pull you out. He's going to bring you to the light. That is his purpose. John chapter 10, verses 1 through 30. The good shepherd, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. He can bring you out of the darkest of places because he is the light of the world. John 8, 12. Finally this morning, when we wish to see Jesus... We should see the one who loved the world so much 
that he gave his life for the work. I understand that there is a time and a place to bring out false doctrine. There's a time and a place to to, to think about sin and wickedness and evil and and to expose it. And, And Christians, we have that responsibility to do that. And everybody that preaches the gospel has that responsibility. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. 2 Timothy 4.2 But I believe this world needs to hear more about the love of Jesus. Yes, there, again, there's the aspect that he's coming back as judge. And he is. And all those who don't obey the gospel will be destroyed with flaming fire forever and ever. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 7-9 And when Jesus comes back, he's coming back as judge. And we're going to stand before him. 2 Corinthians 5, 10, and 11 But this needs to be our motivation. This needs to be why we're here this morning. This needs to be why we've already got our plans made Wednesday night at 7. This is where we're going to be. This is why next Sunday, if the Lord allows us to live to next Sunday, this is where we're going to be without question. Why? Because we love the one who loved us enough to die for us. And if he was willing to go to that extent, why should we not be willing to go to whatever extent it means and and is necessary? For him. That's what these texts, this is what this this really this sermon's about. We need to see Jesus. See the one who loved us enough that he gave everything, even his own life. What are we giving to him in return? When John saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a statement. What a, what a powerful statement that John made. And then again, we go to this text in John 3, if you have your Bible still open there. The golden text of the Bible, some have said. But this is what it's all about. In John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, you think about it this way. For God, the greatest being, so loved the greatest emotion, the world, the greatest number, that he gave the greatest act, his only begotten son, the greatest gift, That whosoever believes the greatest requirement should not perish the greatest tragedy, but have everlasting life, the greatest reward. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. We need to see Jesus, who left it all and died on the cross for us, that we could have the hope of heaven. And so I close with this question this morning. Like the Gentiles who traveled all that distance, who heard about the teaching They heard about the miracles. They heard about this Jesus, and they said, hey, we want to see him. What about you this morning? Do you wish to see Jesus? If you're not a Christian this morning, if you've never obeyed the gospel, why not see him? See what he did for you as an individual. See how much love he has for you, and see how bad he wants you to be saved. God wants you to become his child, and you can do it today. Motivated by the love that God has had for you. Motivated by the love that Jesus had for you to die on the cross. Why not be motivated enough to obey his gospel? If you believe that Jesus is the son of God based on the evidence found in the word of God. John 8, 24. If you're willing to repent of your sins, change your mind, change your life. If you're willing to confess with the mouth, Jesus is Lord. uh, Romans 10, 9 and 10. Then you can be baptized into Christ. You can have all your sins washed away. You can rise to walk in newness of life, Acts twenty two sixteen, And the Bible says, if we stay faithful unto, even in the face of death, we'll receive a crown of life. We can keep on walking in the light. The blood of Jesus will keep on cleansing us. 
until we're called home. But it may be that as a Christian, maybe you've stopped seeing Jesus. Maybe you've turned a blind eye to the one who died for you. You've turned a blind eye to the one who shed his blood for you and the one that you obeyed. Maybe your eyes have become blurry because of the world. You've gone back to a life of sin. I hope and pray that you'll open your eyes back up today and see Jesus. It may be the case that you need to respond to the Lord's invitation. And if that's the case, don't turn a blind eye. Don't shut your eyes to this opportunity. Open your eyes. See Jesus and come to him. Won't you come, Mr. Gale, we stand and sing.